listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. My name's Mark, if I haven't met you. Uh, Merry Christmas and welcome to Red today. We're just going to just reflect uh, just for a few moments on the story, one of the stories that we find in the Gospels uh, around the birth of Jesus. Uh, if you want to follow on, there's actually some Bibles uh, in the little shelf in front of you, in the seats. Uh, feel free to grab one. We're going to be looking at Luke's Gospel account Luke was a fastidious researcher, probably a doctor, who undertook to write an orderly summary of what he has seen of the life of Jesus and heard from other people. So we're going to be reading from his account today. Uh, So Luke, near the end of the Bible, and we're going to actually begin in chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living... Out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Shepherds at this time were very low in the social order. They were given a task which was seen as not very glamorous. This was a task which other people looked down upon. There's a little clue around this that at this time, people lived in villages in this part of Israel, but actually where are the shepherds living? They're living out in the fields, not included in the normal human community. Where sheep were called to be raised by the tradition of that time, the various Jewish wisdom books, the Mishnah, the Talmud, said that sheep actually had to be raised out in the wilderness. So here we have a group of people not living where everyone else lives, living in a wilderness. And what's the time? The time is night. It's dark. Wilderness and darkness. This was the reality of where this scene occurs, but it also spoke to something bigger, a spiritual sense that these shepherds, plus many others in Israel at this time, felt that they were in a wilderness and they were also in a moment of darkness. The last book in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, before the New Testament, which heralds the coming of Jesus, is the book Malachi. It's given to a prophet, someone who speaks for God, Malachi, but a lot of the book is actually a conversation between Israel and God. And it begins in this very, very personable, conversational language between God and Israel as a collective. Malachi 1 verse 2 says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. But then this reply, this response from Israel. But you ask, how have you loved us? Israel had read the stories of how God had intervened in her history. This was part of their spiritual and cultural DNA. Yet when they looked at the reality of where they were at this moment, caught in 
the wilderness spiritually, caught in a moment of darkness under Roman oppression, their culture being crushed, they're unable to worship God in the ways that their ancestors had. God had seemingly plunged them into a darkness. And what's really interesting, this is not so much a darkness of unbelief, rather it's a deeper question. How have you loved us? You say these things, they're saying, but when I look at the circumstances, God, how have you really loved us? Israel felt that God had turned his face away from them. And this is a question that is not just Israel's question, but actually it's a question that goes out from humanity. When we look at the world and we actually just crunch the raw data, often when we talk about the church in Australia, we actually talk about the church and its struggle against secularism or a culture of unbelief, but the statistics don't match up. When we look in Australia, those who claim to have no belief are actually a very small minority. Whilst the church may be a minority, the vast majority of Australians believe in God. Even weirder, those who claim to have no faith and not believe in God, when a further questioned, and there's various studies, that those who don't believe in God actually spend bizarrely, strangely large amounts of time praying. And when we look at the global context, we see that the concept of disbelief is one that has various cultural connotations, mainly found in the cultures which were dominant during the colonial period of Western or European supremacy in the 19th century, some communist regimes like China and North Korea. But humanity overwhelmingly believes in some concept of the divine. The question then is not so much, God, are you there? But actually, God, do you love us? And today, many of us have this sense that God is there, perhaps the way someone senses a presence in a dark room. But what we long to see is beyond the presence. To not just see the presence, but see the person. Not just feel an impersonal force, but actually see a face and see whether that face looks on us with scorn, disappointment, ambivalence or love. For some, we tire of trying to construct a life of meaning within the dark. We cautiously take steps to see if there is something in the dark. Others who find their life washed over by moments of darkness, a dark palette of circumstances gone wrong, worrying if there's something that they've done wrong speculating if circumstances are actually evidence of divine punishment, wondering as they look at this story and what fate seemingly has dealt them, how God loves them. Those who believe, who follow Jesus, but tire of peering what into seems like the dim, dull light of the current state of their cities, their churches, their cultures, their families, or even their own faiths, who reach out a hand into the twilight, wanting to grasp more. God, how have you loved us? Why does it sometimes feel like we are in a wilderness or the dark? 
as you read on in the book of Malachi, the conversation with God continues. And what's interesting is, as God speaks, the tables are slightly turned. Humanity worries that God's actually turned his face away from humanity, but as God speaks, we begin to realize that actually Israel has turned her face from God. She is unjust. She propagates oppression. She's self-serving, unfaithful at every level. The room appears dark because actually it's Israel that's made the room dark. Israel, her priests and people have become hypocrites, a word we get from the Greek meaning play actor. And in the ancient theater of ancient Greece, actors who, instead of using the face to express emotions, actually wore masks. A hypocrite is someone who wears a mask. And thus humanity wears masks because we fear our spaces will actually speak of our true motivations, speaking louder than words. So we mask what we really feel. And this masking, which has its roots in shame, actually breaks the human face-to-face -face relationship that was covenant. What we just saw in the video put in such simple language that children can understand. Humans break down in relationship, and that breaks down our relationship with God. And as the book of Deuteronomy 31.18 says, God sees this, seeing humanity hiding its face from him. And he says, I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they've done. Darkness, wilderness. But as the shepherds looked up at the night sky, as they would do so often, no TV, no phone, no books out there in the wilderness, they would look into the vast expanse of the night sky and see these pinpricks burning bright, these little lights flashing back at them, stars puncturing the dark. And in this moment of darkness, for the shepherds, for the whole of Israel, there were these lights which shone through, these distant stars, these stars that were promises. In Malachi, one promise shines brightly. When God says to Israel, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. This promise that despite the darkness of the moment, despite the feeling of being in wilderness, that actually there is the potential that God may peel back the dark and actually unleash all the goodness of heaven upon Israel and humanity. How would this happen? Another bright burning star in the sky, puncturing the darkness. Malachi 3.1 says that this opening of heaven will be facilitated by a person. Scripture says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. God will return, turning his face to them. The messenger of the covenant symbolizing that relationship between humanity and God. Whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. These pinpricks of light in a dark moment inspire the psalmist to cry out to God, let your face shine on your servant, save me in your unfailing love. 
says Psalm 31. Psalm 17, as for me, I will be vindicated and I will see your face when I awake. I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. This hunger for God to see his face, to see who he is. Why does the scripture use this imagery of the face to describe this relationship between God and humanity? The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery says this, the face is an ever-changing billboard signaling our own attitudes and reactions. Much of what we know about others, we learn from their faces before they even speak. The face is the essence of the person. A number of years ago, my brother and I used to go and get our hair cut from a particular hairdresser. And one day, she was cutting my hair, and we've been going for a couple years And she was just so stressed. You don't want a stressed hairdresser as they move sharp things around your hair. And then one day she's like, oh, look, I'm so sorry. I'm like, what is it? Like, also, you don't want your hairdresser saying, I'm sorry, mid-haircut. And she said, look, it's just you and your brother. You're so intense. You look so unhappy and so stressed and angry every time you're getting your hair cut that I'm just so stressed that I'm somehow messing this up. I didn't even know that she knew that me and my brother, I'd never talked about my brother. She'd seen our faces, put us together, and obviously there's an unintentional, aloof intensity that the Sayers brothers have that had been oppressing this poor woman. And I'm like, no, I'm actually quite relaxed. I'm having a good day. There's something where what I'm giving out here is not actually what you're getting. That's because our faces speak a primal language, deeper than words. At that moment, it was off. But you can see the news that someone's bringing. When they come with good news, there's a various figure, configurations that the muscles in our face do. Our eyes sparkle. Our mouth smiles. Watch a sporting event when someone kicks an incredible goal, shoots an incredible basket, pulls off a gold medal winning jump, and you watch the crowd. You watch thousands of people in unison go, so bizarre, primal language that cuts across, doesn't matter what language you speak. It's deeper than words, pointing beyond us to something greater. The English philosopher Roger Scruton writes, the science of, human, of the human being has no real use for faces. Of course, it recognizes all the components of the face, it acknowledges that there's such a thing as the recognition of the face, but it does not acknowledge the thing that makes the face so important to us, namely that they are the outward form and image of the soul, the lamp lit in our world by the subject behind. Our faces are a gateway, a threshold, a boundary, an interface with other people, giving away who we really are. When you speak to someone in anger or love, you redress their face. You don't get frustrated at someone and look at their kneecaps and say, I'm sick of you. In a moment of love and overwhelming passion, you don't look at your loved one's elbow and say, how how I love you, unless they have just stunning elbows. No one cares about elbows. Like You've never heard like, He's fantastic. Have you seen his elbows? I know. It's like, it's just irrelevant. But I digress. The focal point of the physical world is in your face. It's where you're revealed. It's where you encounter others. That's when we see someone's face and look into their face, it feels awkward. 
Some cultures, you don't look into the eyes because the eyes are seen as the gateway to the soul. Other cultures, you want to look into someone's eyes to show that you are truly authentic and honest. That's because when we actually see the face, we encounter someone. Thus, to see the face of God is to truly encounter God as He is and for Him to encounter us as we are. And as Adam and Eve leave the garden, they hide their faces and their bodies in shame, afraid to be seen truly by God. And so a face is presence. God's face is His presence. And so living in those Judean hills out in the wilderness, the shepherds on the edge of Israel still would have prayed with Israel to see the face of God in the darkness of that moment of Roman oppression and spiritual exile. Reading on, verse 9 says this, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. The shepherds are told to go to this particular town, this town of Bethlehem. There they're going to meet this sent one from the Lord. There they're going to actually encounter God. The incredibleness of this moment cannot be underestimated. Not priests in the temple, not the king, not Caesar, not the heights of the various religious orders of the day, but actually these humble shepherds get to actually go and see into the town God. Their nervousness, people who aren't even really invited into town, these are like the bad sorts. They're not meant to come into town, yet they head into town in nervousness nervousness to actually see God. And then it says this, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This is who Malachi promised would come. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is heaven, this is the promise of Malachi. Test me and see if I will not peel back heaven and pour out my goodness on humanity. It's happening now in this field in the back blocks in the back of Burke 2,000 years ago. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. The shock. The strangeness. That moment when they meet the Lord. When everything that they, those in Israel, their ancestors, humanity, had wanted to see in that moment how unlike what they expected. Coming down is not some giant, impressive, stunning, monolithic God with a great beard, huge, but actually a baby's face, unable to speak, only a face able to speak the volumes of love, 
the innocent joy of a baby locking eyes with the adults, the contrast between the soft skin and the newness of the baby's face with the weather-beaten features of the shepherds. And for those of you who have ever held a baby in the birthing suite, a niece, a nephew, a grandchild, a son or daughter, unable to speak, but whose eyes speak that primal language, delighted to see you. There's no hiding our faces in shame before a baby. In a baby's face, this portent of the lack of judgment that those who would bend a knee in worship before Jesus can see. But also, weirdly, there is this judgment. A judgment which needs to come to a world that's become hypocritical and evil and oppressive. But the weird flip that God does here is, it's not a giant judge out of the sky, a really angry Judge Judy with a giant gavel at this moment. The judgment is that to receive this baby, you have to humble yourself. That the vulnerability of this baby who is being cuddled and fed by Mary, soon to become a refugee headed off into Egypt, held by Joseph, a worrying father and mother. The vulnerability of that baby shows the upside down kingdom that this is not about power, this is not about pride, this is actually the world turned upside down and there's a judgment in there, but it's love and judgment together in a wonderful way that no human mind could come up with. The babies face a fresh palette of soft skin and possibility. And babies change ever so quickly. And so Jesus doesn't stay baby-faced. Rather, his face grows in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, as Scripture tells us. It gains laughter lines, living as a human being amongst us, not staying distant, but walking through all of our experiences. It'll be wet by tears, dusty as he walks the backways and byways of Israel. Eventually stained with sweat and blood on a Roman cross, a canvas painting the salvation history of humanity and the greatest love letter ever written to you and I. Jesus is God's face turning to you and answering, how does he love you without words? And the only response to a face that says that he does love us, that he came close, that he came amongst us, that he gave up everything in heaven to actually be here and die on a Roman cross for all that we did wrong. The only response we actually see in Matthew's gospel when these wise men, these courtly entourage come from the world's superpower at the time. It's not Israel, it's actually people who come from Babylon. These Persian wise men come in a caravan and they come and they actually enact an act of Persian tradition in the Persian courts, which is when people would come before the king, they would actually lie prostrate on the ground before the king, hiding their face, this time not in shame, but actually in reverence. And these Persian wise men, who were used to the finer things in life, actually show the way forward for humanity. 
that actually you get down in the dirt and the ordinariness and the humility of actually a manger with animals and smells and this young couple and you actually bow before the king. They see what's going on. But then the next movement, that actually a baby is joyful. You can't just sit there laying prostate before a baby, that actually with a baby you have to pick it up and interact with it. And I love to imagine the shepherds or the wise men mucking around, having fun with the young Jesus. And in this we see that Jesus isn't just this king that sits and demands obsequience before him, that actually he reaches out a hand and asks us to walk with him, that in John 15, 14, Jesus actually speaks of his followers as his friends. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for the where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces, no longer covered with shame or sin, can contemplate the Lord's glory and we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Jesus is God's face. His face is a blessing. His face is the gift. His present is the present. His presence is here now, 2,000 years later. And as we go from here now until whatever day you've got, you may be dripping with anticipation about a huge scale family event with lots of turkey and pudding and gifts and everyone there and you just can't wait to get from here and engage in that. Others, it may be more ambivalent, a day perhaps of some apprehension, some family conflict. Others, it actually might be a day where the calendar actually is a bit open. Paul Tripp said that Christmas begins as a story of loneliness, but actually ends with the fact that God is present. Jesus loves you. The ultimate gift is him. So as we go from here, I would love to read Psalm 67. Let's stand. I want to read this as a blessing over us. I want to read this for you. If you're just visiting today, being brought along with family, I want to read if you worship somewhere else. I want to read this if you're just reaching out in the dark, a hand to see if God's there. I want to read this if you're part of Red Church. I want to read this for all of us. And my prayer is that you will see in the face of Jesus how much God loves you. Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the people praise you, God. May all the, prophet, the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy for you rule the people with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May all the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still, so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. Have a wonderful Christmas. As you see God's face turn to you.